Well, one of the most notable stories in the Old Testament takes place in Exodus chapter 32, but it really spans several chapters going all the way back to chapter 20 and stretching all the way to chapter 35. Moses had led God's people out of Egypt through the Red Sea on dry land, and now they were in the wilderness preparing themselves for the promised land. Moses is led up the mountain by the Lord to the top of Mount Sinai to receive the law of God. Now, this would have been a remarkable experience. As the Lord himself wrote down on tablets of stone, the law of God with his own finger. Never in his life would Moses have expected to have such an intimate and unbridled access to God. This would have been life-changing. And as he descends from the mountain, however, he is not met by people who are eager to receive God's revelation. What he finds as he comes down the mountain is a people who have virtually abandoned their faith in the one true God and perverted their religion by worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses is jolted from his transcendent mountaintop experience to a debased gathering of wickedness and debauchery. And the question then to consider is, how had a people fallen so far so fast? Moses is infuriated and heartbroken, and he castigates the people for their sinfulness, and he offers up a prayer of intercession to the Lord because God himself is burning with anger over this, and his prayer is that God himself would spare them from his own wrath. Now, thankfully, the people repent and the Lord relents. But this tragic occurrence is not unlike the place that takes place in the aftermath of the disciples' own mountaintop experience that we read about a couple weeks ago. And so I would invite you to turn with me to, to Matthew chapter 17 in your copy of Scripture, Matthew 17. Very similar, we saw these parallels between the, the Moses on Mount Sinai and the Lord on the Mount Transfiguration. Lots of parallels between both of those stories. But in the beginning of Matthew 17, really, takes place at the top of this mountain with the Lord. He's also there with Peter, James, and John. And it's up on this mountain that they behold the Lord Jesus Christ transfigured before them, shining radiantly the glory of heaven. In the midst of the sight, they hear the voice of God declaring, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Again, a a life-changing, transcendent experience with God. But after this transcendent experience, they make their way back down the mountain only to behold something very awful. They behold a fierce debate that's taking place among the people, and it includes some of the disciples, the nine remaining that were not on the top of the mountain. Mark actually records this in his gospel. He says, when they came back to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and some scribes were arguing with them. What are they arguing about? Well, we quickly figure it out when a man bursts through the crowd and kneels at the feet of Jesus. We pick it up in Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 14. When they came to the crowd, a man came up to Jesus, falling on his knees before him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill. 
for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, Because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. But this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. We'll stop right there. Now, out of the confusion of the crowd, this man, we don't know his name, but we just know he's a man with a son. He comes to Jesus, and the text says that he falls on his knees This is not likely worship. This is most likely just humility and respect for Jesus. But verse 15, the man makes an earnest plea to the Lord. In verse 15 again, he says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is a lunatic and is very ill, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. Now this poor man, he has thrown himself at Jesus, and he says, Lord, have mercy on my son. Luke, a parallel account, Luke records that This says that this is the man's only son. He's his only son. So not only is this just one of many, many children, one of many, many sons, this is his pride and joy. His only son, no doubt, the son whom he cherishes, he says, have mercy on him. Have mercy. In other words, show compassion, show sympathy. Please, Lord. Why, he says, well, because he is a lunatic. Now, our modern take on that word implies sort of a person who's crazy or silly or out of their mind. Even when you read the word lunatic, you're thinking, that's a person just running around acting kind of crazy. And we sort of diminish that. It's sort of a a lighthearted, you know, jost at somebody. We tend to associate this with mental illness. But the true sense of the word here is a person who is, and this is the old word, who is moonstruck. Moonstruck. And the word lunatic, luna meaning moon, So they believe that this was a different condition altogether. This is an old understanding of why this condition happens. People used to believe that the moon was to blame for this erratic, crazy behavior. The Greek word is often nowadays rendered uh, epileptic. Epileptic. So this boy suffers from a form of epilepsy. Epilepsy. And the father adds, he is very ill. He's very sick. And then he goes on to describe what these epileptic fits would have looked like. He explains that the boy often falls into the fire and often into the water. Mark actually adds more to this account. Mark 9.17 includes that the father believed the son to be possessed by a spirit that makes him mute. So he's also likely deaf and dumb. He can't hear. He can't speak. This boy is terribly afflicted. However, when the spirit seizes him, he says... It dashes him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. Even today, this describes the very common symptoms of epilepsy. However, this boy's condition is worse. It's worse than even all that. Because it says here that the epileptic fit is caused by demon possession. There's a demon that's afflicting him. 
As if the seizures weren't bad enough, the demon frequently tries to murder the child by throwing him into open fires or drowning him into the water. It's not unreasonable to think that this boy might have been covered with scars and burn, scars from burns after being burned so many times. They're standing by a campfire and he goes into a seizure and he gets thrown into a fire. Or they go by a watering hole and he goes into a seizure and he throws himself and he drowns himself and the, the father has to run in and grab him out of the water and resuscitate him. I mean, this is a, a constant occurrence. So this poor father has been trying to help his son, his only son, who was terribly afflicted and the Bible says he had been since birth. Horrible, terrible affliction. What do you do? What's left to do? This man is no doubt at his wit's end. Nothing else to do. However, he had heard stories, no doubt, about the ministry of Jesus and the disciples. He tells the Lord in verse 16, I brought my son, I brought him to your disciples, and they could not cure him. This is no doubt what caused the stir in the crowd. The disciples were supposed to have been able to cure illness. Jesus gave them the authority back in chapter 10, verse 1. If you remember, in chapter 10, verse 1, having summoned the 12 disciples, he, referring to Jesus, gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every kind of sickness and every kind of disease. We studied that quite a while ago. Later on in verse 8 of the same chapter, Jesus tells the disciples, the 12, it's important that we note that this is actually the 12. He doesn't give this authority to every other person in the world. He gives it to the 12. And he tells the twelve, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. So they had been given months ago the authority and the ability to cast out demons. But here with this boy, they're unable to do so. And don't you doubt for a minute that this is what the scribes would have jumped all over to discredit and invalidate Jesus' ministry. See, even his disciples, he, he apparently gives them the authority to cast out demons. They can't even do it. Some savior he is, right? So this is the cause, we believe, of the consternation. But how does Jesus respond to this? What does he say? Look at verse 17. Jesus answered, <clears throat> answered and said, <clears throat> You unbelieving and perverted generation. He says, How long shall I be with you? How long should I put up with you? Bring him here to me. Jesus responds with frustration and lament. Remember, Jesus has been ministering nonstop all over Israel and beyond. And over and over again, he emphasized the need for faith. Yet over and over again, he struggled to find it anywhere. Later on in Luke's gospel, Luke 18 or verse 8, he asked the rhetorical question. He says, when the Son of Man comes... Will he find faith on the earth? His point, he's thinking, is no. I will not find faith. I can't find faith on the earth anywhere. Couple this with the fact that Mark records the interchange between the Father and Jesus, whereby the man says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus replies, if I can? If I can? The implication is, what do you mean if I can? To which the boy's father cries out, I, I do believe, but help my unbelief. You see the problem here. Over and over and over again, everywhere that, Pe that Jesus goes, he's finding faithlessness. Everywhere he turns. And so Jesus is inundated with an example upon example of abject 
lack of faith, and so he belts out this. He says, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Unbelieving, perverted. Who was this directed at, by the way? Well, William Hendrickson comments this. The fact that he directs his complaint to the generation shows that he cannot have been thinking only about the nine disciples who were left who failed in this emergency. He was evidently deeply dissatisfied with his contemporaries. And then Hendrickson lists them all. With the father, who lacked sufficient faith in Christ's healing power. With the scribes, who, instead of showing any pity, were in all probability gloating over the disciples' impotence. With the crowd in general, which is pictured in the Gospels as being generally far more concerned about itself than others. And last but not least, with the nine disciples because of their failure to exercise their faith by putting their whole heart into persevering prayer. Now, it was not that there was no faith at all, um, but rather the current generation that is encountered by Jesus is characterized by faithlessness. Thank you. And not only faithlessness, but also perversion of thinking. They were so twisted up with the things of God that when he came to visit them, what did they do? The Lord of glory comes to earth to visit his people, and what do they do? How perverted are they? How unbelieving are they? They reject him, persecute him, and kill him. That's the faithless and unbelieving generation that Jesus comes to. He proclaims, you unbelieving and perverted generation, and then he laments this, how long shall I be with you? The implication is, I'm not going to be here much longer. What, what is it going to take for you guys to get this? I'm not going to be here forever. You better get it now. How long shall I be with you? Then he says this, how long shall I put up with you? He's frustrated at their spiritual stuntedness, and yet he takes pity on this poor boy. He looks over at the father, he looks over at the son, and he says, bring him here to me. Verse 18, and Jesus rebuked him, and the demon came out of him, and the boy was cured at once. Mark again records more detail. When Jesus rebuked the demon, at that point, it throws him into a convulsion, into a terrible fit. And then the boy falls to the ground lifeless. The father thinks the son is dead. But then Mark 9.27 records that Jesus took the boy by the hand and raised him up, and he got up. Very tender, very intimate. Jesus is obviously moved by this boy. Now, for the first time in his life, this boy is made well. He can now behold his father with a clear mind. He doesn't have to worry about having fits and seizures and foaming at the mouth and terrible, awful, muscular seizures that take over his whole body. He doesn't have to worry about being thrown into the fire anymore. And the, and the father doesn't have to worry about the death of his son anymore. The father can finally, after a whole lifetime of putting up with this, the father can rest. Finally, the father has his son. Jesus has restored him to perfect health. Now, if this doesn't cause quite a stir in the crowd, nothing else would. This is absolutely remarkable. And every single one of Jesus' miracles, it's very easy for us as Christians, as gospel-believing, Bible-believing Christians to read the text of Scripture. We read it for years and years and years and just gloss over the miracles. And then he healed him. And then he healed him. And then he healed her. Without remembering, putting ourselves in the gospel itself, 
This is someone who has an affliction that is destroying their body and their mind and their heart, and Jesus purges it instantly. This is a remarkable thing. Every single time Jesus heals a person, it's miraculous. It's powerful. It's worshipful. And every single time the crowd stands in amazement. They don't know what to say. In fact, Luke 9.43 records, And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. They got over their little fits, their little squabbles. They got over their doubting. They got over all their bickering. And all of them just stood there amazed at God's greatness displayed in this miracle. It stopped their mouth cold. Marvelous. But things weren't over here for the disciples. Look at verse 19. And the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not drive it out? Perhaps embarrassed to ask him in front of anybody else publicly, he pulls, they pull him aside privately. And in the Greek, the emphasis is on we here. So that's what they're saying. They're saying, Why could we not do this? We, we watched you do this, but you told us we could. How come we couldn't do it, Lord? After all, they'd casted out demons many, many times. They had been through this before. Jesus had given them the authority to do it, so why not now? Why not now? Look at verse 20. He said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. This is just one of many places that Jesus attacks their faithlessness. Just to, re- to rehearse this in your mind, even just in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Matthew 6.30, you of little faith. Matthew 8.26, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Chapter 14, verse 31, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Chapter 16, verse 8, oh, you men of little faith, why do you discuss among yourselves that you have no bread? Why are you worried? Why are you doubting? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know that I'm leaving soon? Don't you know that I have to be about my father's business and so do you? You have little, little faith. This is a recurring problem. It wasn't the problem of their faithless generation alone. It was their problem as well. But here he tells them the reason they couldn't cast out the boy's demon was because of the littleness of their faith. Now, it's interesting because if you look at the very next sentence, he encourages them that even if they had the faith of a mustard seed, which is very, very small, they could have done it. Now, it seems like those two statements are contradictory. On one level, he says you have very little faith. On the other side, he says, if you have little faith, you can do it. So what does that, does that make any sense? Well, we see here the charge of the littleness of their faith isn't that they have mustard seed-sized faith, but rather in the, the language here, oligopistia refers more to the deficiency of their faith, the poverty of their faith, the bankruptcy of their faith. It's not little like small in size, adequate. It's little as in like almost not there. Because you guys are totally bankrupt in your faith. Even though you've seen great things, yet you still don't trust me. I've shown you time and time again, and you have so little faith. Somehow they had forgotten that the power to heal and cast out demons was given to them. But they believed it resided within themselves. That's what their problem was. It wasn't that they had faith in Jesus. That, that wasn't their, what, what, what they were thinking about. They were trusting in themselves to do it. 
But here's the thing. They weren't faith healers. That wasn't their job. They were disciples. They were apostles later on. But the bottom line is that they're completely dependent on God to do anything, and they had forgotten that. And so often, that's our problem too. We think after we've been running as a Christian for so many years and so many, so many decades that, well, at a certain point, we go from faith to works. We switch over from trusting in God to, well, he's done enough work in me, so now I can do something. We forget, though, that faithfulness to God means always being faithful to God and doing it by faith in God. We can do nothing of ourselves, ever. And as soon as we think that this is on us, this is me doing this, we've fallen off the wagon. Somewhere along the way, they had stopped trusting in God for ministry. They began trusting in themselves. And Jesus is reminding them here that the true source of their power is not in you. You're not anointed healers. You belong to me, and I'm the one who does it through you. Huge difference here. And we're going to talk about this more next week, by the way. That's my intention, Lord willing. But listen, he's not expecting them to be Elijah. He's not expecting them to be these mighty, powerful, awesome men of God. He's not, he never expects that of them. These men are fishermen and tax collectors. He knows who they are. He knows their giftedness. He knows their history. But he does expect from them some measure of faith, which is why he says to them at this point, for truly I say to you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, brothers, my friends, if you have just this little tiny seed of faith, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Now, this notion of moving mountains is not meant to be taken literally. However, Jesus will move mountains when he returns, by the way. Read ahead in, in Zechariah, we find it there. But here, moving mountains, is, it's a symbolic phrase, and it refers to doing something that is seemingly impossible, impossible circumstances. And there are times when Christians feel compelled to attempt something great for God, and we all have sort of ideas about doing amazing things for God, at least on some level. Some are more ambitious than other people, but, but we have this notion of doing something great for God, and yet we don't have the slightest idea how to accomplish it, but yet we trust in the Lord. And let me tell you, that has been the testimony of every single believer who's ever done anything great by the earth's standards. One example I was thinking about this week, it's estimated that Billy Graham preached the gospel to more than 215 million people during his lifetime. 215 million people. Now, if he had sat down when he was 20 years old and drew up like a whole life plan and said, I want to reach 215 million people, how am I going to do it? He would have been totally inept to figure it out. He would have, he would have had no idea. He would have failed miserably. And yet he trusted God. And God moved mountains through that ministry. And I, we see that through faith in the power of God, Jesus tells them, nothing will be impossible to you. Now, we must note here, this is not a blanket promise. Sometimes this gets wrongly taught. This is wrongly taught very often, that somehow the Lord is just giving this blanket decree that I give you this, all this authority, all this power, and nothing you can do will be impossible for you. You can do whatever you want and by faith. And people make all kinds of audacious claims. But rather, we have to understand that this is 
rightly understood and rightly in context with the, the whole realm of Scripture. What does that mean? It means for us that all these things are true if they are in submission to the provident workings of God. God must do this through his providence. That's why Paul says in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He's not saying I can do all things. Nothing is impossible for me. He's saying no, within the strength and the mercy and the providence and the kindness and the forbearance and the enabling power of God, I can do anything he wants me to do. God doesn't make us spiritual supermen. There's no such thing. Every believer, and every believer who does great things for God on this planet, every single believer is nothing more than a lowly sinner redeemed by grace. That's all we are. Not one of us is higher on the totem pole than than another. The ground, as they say, is level at the foot of the cross. Now, yes, there are people who are growing in spiritual maturity, growing in ability. God gives certain people certain gifts. But in terms of our raw spiritual strength, we have nothing on anybody else. No, we are totally and utterly helpless apart from God. At the end of his life, Martin Luther was praised for bringing about the Protestant Reformation. And what was his response when people credited him with the entire Reformation of the Western world? He said this, I did nothing. The Word did it all. In fact, that's my personal conviction of the growth of even this church. This has nothing to do with me or with us. This has nothing to do with our core families. It has nothing to do with our family. It has nothing to do with... This has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with God's desire to work in this church. He does everything that he intends to do. It's because he has willed it through the power of his word. His word accomplishes much. And whenever his word is faithfully proclaimed and earnestly proclaimed, he uses that word to accomplish great things. That's the secret. It's the word of God. Now, some Bible translations do not include verse 21. If you're using the New American Standard, which is the the pew Bible that you have here in the seats, we do include it here, but others don't include it. Most, Most translations put this verse in brackets, and it's this. Jesus says, but this kind, referring to the demon, goes not, goes, does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now, why is this verse in brackets, or why is it not included in some translations? Well, textual scholars do not find this verse in some of our earliest manuscripts of the Bible. We do, however, find it in Mark chapter 9, verse 29. So it is germane to Scripture. And so what likely happened over the course of time is that some copyist, a person who was copying down the Scriptures, some copyist added that verse in because he knew that it belonged there in the narrative. He's reading Matthew, he's reading Mark, and goes, wait a second, there's a phrase missing here. So he grabbed the phrase from Mark and inserted it into Matthew. Even though this verse is not likely original to Matthew's gospel, it is original to Mark, and therefore it is inspired Scripture. Jesus really did say these words, and we're meant to understand that he said them. But what does verse 21 mean? This kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Again, I believe some have wrongly read this verse and seen this as a prescription for spiritual warfare that somehow there are various methods of casting out demons. 
And certain demons can only be cast out by prayer, and others by fasting, and others by this, and others by that. That somehow this is sort of a spiritual warfare manual of how to do this. But that can't be the meaning at all. Well, why? Because this is never discussed or explained or expected anywhere else in the Scriptures. Nowhere in the New Testament do you find anything like this. Where, number one, the Apostle Paul or John or anyone else is telling us to do this, and never giving a prescription to do it. The closest we find to anything with spiritual warfare is uh, Ephesians chapter 6. But all of that has to do with the the armor of God, spiritual discipline, spiritual fortitude. It has nothing to do with methodology for how to cast out demons. Paul gives no special instructions to any of the churches of any kind. And furthermore, the Bible never treats prayer and fasting as working, as they say in theological terms, ex opere operato. In other words, prayer and fasting don't have any kind of intrinsic power in and of themselves. It's not that if I pray a certain way, the demon will come out. It's not as though if I fast for this many days, I have extra spiritual power. So prayer and fasting don't have intrinsic power. That's really important to understand because many teachers and preachers wrongly ascribe that kind of power to their spiritual disciplines. And it's just not true. And so what is he talking about? Well, Jesus is essentially saying this. When all of your efforts to exercise this demon failed, you should have sought the Lord earnestly. Well, how earnestly? Through prayer, you should have humbled yourselves and entreated the Lord. You should have gone to God in prayer when you couldn't do it. Through fasting, well, what is that? That's a denial of self. It's when you skip a meal for a day or even a couple days. Some people fast or even longer. There's all different kinds of ways the Bible prescribes fasting. But the point here is that they were supposed to turn to the Lord by faith. And how does that work? Well, that's the whole point of the passage. That is the entire theme of this entire passage is the faithlessness of the people before God. And so Jesus is telling them, you should have done this by faith, not trusting in yourself. When you hit a brick wall, you should have turned to me. You should have trusted in me. You should have stopped looking to yourself. You should have denied yourself and come to me humbly. If they had ministered in faith, they could have helped the boy. They could have, but they didn't, which is why Jesus grows so exasperated. First, at the whole generation of Jews, because none of them seemed to be faithful to him, Then he grows upset with the Father for doubting his power. What do you mean, if I can heal him? You came to me because I'm the Lord, and yet you're going to doubt me? And then finally he gets upset with the disciples. You should have trusted me. I can't even have my own disciples trusting in me. Yet they all struggle in their faith, and they would struggle all the way to the end, which is what makes verses 22 and 23 also so difficult to read. Verses 22 and 23. And while they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Now, this predictive prophecy should look very familiar to us. This is the third time in no less than two chapters in Matthew that this has shown up. Back in Matthew chapter 16, verses 21 to 23, he says almost the exact same thing. And Peter rejects that prophecy, 
because he doesn't fathom the idea of the Lord Jesus being killed. And what does he say to him? He says, God forbid it, Lord. This will never happen to you. And Jesus gets angry at him and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not considering the things of God. You're only thinking about yourself. He rebukes him for that. And then again in chapter 17, verse 12, same thing. He predicts his own suffering. He predicts his own death. And now a third time, a third time in a short amount of space here in the text, he tells the disciples, the Son of Man, which is his favorite messianic title for himself, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Now, for some reason, and I don't understand why, except that somehow their faithlessness was blinding them from the truth. But for some reason, in every single occurrence, the disciples don't seem to grasp the idea of the resurrection. Every time they hear about him being persecuted and dying, in their minds, they stop right there. And they get upset and they become grieved. Even though he says, and I'll be raised on the third day. They don't seem to get that. It's easy for us to look back and say that, why couldn't you get it? But in their position, in their place, they just didn't see it. And how do we know they didn't see it? Well, because of the words that the text says here, and they were deeply grieved. They were deeply grieved. Why? Because they couldn't fathom the idea of losing Jesus to death. They were just terrified of losing him. And yet, it's another illustration of their little faith. They should have trusted the Lord. That's, that was his theme for the entire ministry he was here. What does John write at the end of his gospel? These things are written that you might believe, and by believing you'll have life in his name. The entire ministry of Jesus Christ was to foster repentance and faith in his people. And yet we don't believe. We're so quick to doubt. We're so quick to run away. We're so quick to panic. Oh, you have little faith. And the disciples, they should have trusted the Lord. Why was Abraham so blessed? Because Abraham believed the promise of God that even though, even though the Lord told him to put his own son to death, and he stood up there and put him on the altar, raised the dagger to stab his own son in the heart, his only son, the Lord stops him. But why did Abraham do what he did? Because he trusted the Lord that even though my son's going to die, I believe the promise of God My son is going to rise again. I don't know how. I don't know when. I don't know where. But I believe God. Abraham believed God, Genesis 15, 6, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Where is their faith? Did they not believe that Jesus was going to go into the ground and die and then rise again? Could they not see that when he told them repeatedly? But they they didn't see it. They didn't understand what he was doing. And they doubted him. And isn't that the trap that we all fall into? So often we fall into this. We hit a snag. We hit a trial, a sickness, an illness, a financial hardship, a relational struggle, something. We hit a brick wall, and we don't see the outcome. You look ahead, and you just don't see it. I don't know how I'm going to get from here to there. I don't get it. It seems impossible for me. And you become weary and fearful, and doubting. But what does our text exhort us to do? Well, certainly not to doubt the Lord, and certainly not to grow weary. Instead, we are to seek the Lord earnestly, to seek Him prayerfully, 
to seek him selflessly and to seek him faithfully. Because even if you have the faith of a mustard seed, by God's grace, nothing will be impossible in God's will. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, we read a text of Scripture like this, and we see the faithlessness of the crowds and the faithlessness of the disciples and the faithlessness of the man. And, Lord, it is so easy for us to judge them in history and say, shame on you. But, Lord, if we were to understand this rightly, we would see that we, too, are also in this text. That so often you bring us to the end of ourselves. We see our bankruptcy. We see our sinfulness, our own depravity, our own helplessness. We come to the end of our rope and we say, Lord, there's just no way forward. I don't know how I'm going to do it. And yet you command us, you want us to trust you, to believe in you, and not to have any doubt. That it's in these trials, Lord, that you meet us right where we are. That you're not silent. You're not absent. You're right there with us in the middle of all of it. And it's when we cling to you, you're the one who brings us through. And then we see your hand at work, and then we say, wow, nothing has been impossible for you, O Lord, because you are the sovereign creator of heaven and earth. But Lord, we are so bankrupt, and all of us are sinful. Every single person who's ever lived on this planet, apart from Christ, has sinned against the Lord. The Bible says we've all sinned and fall short of his glory and are worthy of death. And yet, Jesus Christ, the only sinless one, the only sovereign God, came to earth, wrapped himself in a human body, lived here with us, suffered by his own people, was killed on the cross, died and was buried and rose again the third day. Why? To bring salvation to those who would repent of their sins and trust in you. That all of us by faith, all of us by repentance, have eternal life in Christ. That you paid the penalty. You satisfied the wrath of the Father. You gave your life for us, O Lord, that we might have life in you. And so I would beg you and plead with you to increase our faith. Not let us grow weary. Not let us fall off the wagon. Not let us fall backwards but to trust in you, even when life is difficult. And Lord, I know that with your help, all things are possible, but without you, we can do nothing. And so I pray that you would have your way in us today. Help us, Lord, sustain our faith, grow us closer to you, help us to cling to the cross, and love you all the more. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for your salvation. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.